Welcome to The Analysis. I'm Greg Wilpert. Recently, the Biden administration announced that Venezuelans living in the United States would be able to qualify for Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. This means that about 300,000 Venezuelans could remain in the U.S. for another 18 months or longer if the program is extended. Also recently, Secretary of State Antony Blinken had a phone call with so-called interim president and hardline opposition leader Juan Guaido, where Blinken reaffirmed that the United States continues to recognize Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela, even though he no longer leads Venezuela's National Assembly and was never elected. The European Union, in contrast, withdrew its recognition of Guaido following last December's legislative elections in Venezuela. Joining me to discuss the recent developments in U.S.-Venezuela relations is Steve Elner. Steve is a retired history professor from Venezuela's Universidad de Oriente. Currently, he's an associate managing editor of the journal Latin American Perspectives and editor of the recently published book Latin American Extractivism, Dependency, Resource Nationalism and Resistance in Broad Perspective. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. Thanks for having me on, Greg. So there have been a number of adjustments in U.S. policy towards Venezuela since uh, Biden came into office, but there's also some important continuity. Uh, as I mentioned, the major change has been the TPS program, which Trump did not want to provide to Venezuelans, presumably because of his anti-immigration stance. He canceled TPS for all kinds of other nationalities, such as Nicaraguans, Hondurans, etc. Um, but then there are the sanctions that the, um, and the recognition of Guaido as president of Venezuela. Now, how would you characterize the differences and the continuities between uh, Biden's policies towards Venezuela and that of Trump? Well, Rick, you pretty much said it all. Uh, the Trump administration, the Biden administration claims that there is a new policy, that it's embarking on a new course and rejecting everything that Trump uh, said, stood for, and did. Uh, but we really see how false that is uh, with regard to foreign policy. With regard to domestic affairs, it's a whole different ballgame. But with regard to foreign policy, no nothing is really changing in a big way. Uh, just to take one example that doesn't have to do directly with, with Venezuela, the military budget. Trump just announced that the budget will remain the same even though it increased by astronomical amounts during the four years of the, of the Trump administration. But with regard to Venezuela, I mean, you, you pretty much said it, that the Biden administration claims it's embarking on a new approach, uh, but it really isn't, uh, with the exception of Venezuelan immigrants in the United States. But with regard to Venezuelan policy, with regard to Venezuela itself, uh, firstly, the Biden administration is maintaining the international sanctions, uh, which have caused so much suffering among the Venezuelan people. In the second place, uh, as you also mentioned, the Biden administration is continuing to recognize Juan Guaido, who's really sort of a bogus president, um, but uh, the Biden administration recognizes him even though as you also said, the European Union is pulling their recognition of, of Guaido. And in addition to that, you know, the Trump administration really highlighted the fact that there were so many countries 
that were supporting Guaido, uh, and that the United States basically had international uh, support for its policy towards Venezuela. But the fact of the matter is, firstly, the vast majority of nations that belong to the United Nations, more than 100 nations, do not recognize Guaido. And those that do, the 57 countries that do recognize Guaido, um, all but, I think, 11 also recognize Maduro. They have diplomatic relations with both Guaido and with, uh, with the Venezuelan government. So that uh, the United States is really taking a go-it-alone approach to a very great extent. And in the third place, the Trump administration, the Biden administration's claim to be going on a new course. Um, Blinken and others are saying, well, we're now consulting our allies. We're now consulting other countries, which Trump didn't do. But the fact of the matter is, as you mentioned, the European Union is, is no longer uh, recognizing Guaido as Venezuelan president. Um, and secondly, with regard to Latin America, you know, the, the Trump administration uh, promoted the campaign to isolate Venezuela in the hemisphere, uh, and was able to do that because much of Latin America, most of Latin America, uh, was controlled by reactionary, not even conservative governments, reactionary governments. Uh, but that's changed also, uh, beginning with Mexico, with the election of uh, López Obrador in, in 2018, uh, and the election with the two Fernandeses in Argentina, um, and now with Bolivia, uh, uh, the election of Arce, uh, who is um, supported, who belongs to the MAS party of Evo Morales, and the recent elections in Ecuador. Um, so that there's, you know, there are winds of change in Latin America. And the United States, by continuing to support Guaido and by not modifying its policy, it's really going against the, the, the change that's taking place, both in Europe and in Latin America. It would seem that the Biden administration has not learned anything from these four years of disaster, this fiasco, that it looked like the Democrats uh, were uh, understanding, because last year uh, in the Senate, uh, the senator of, from Connecticut, my home state, uh, Chris Murphy interrogated Elliot Abrams and stated uh, that the policy of the Trump administration towards Venezuela was an unmitigated disaster. That, that was the term that he used. Um, and so it looked like Biden was going to change things. It looked like if the Democrats won the elections in November, that things were going to change. But up until now, really nothing's changed. Yeah, that's quite uh, amazing, actually, considering that they had announced that there would be significant changes. And now there's so little in that sense, at least in terms of foreign policy, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, th there are a lot of liberals and progressives in the United States who make a distinction between the Democrats and Republicans. And there is a definite divide when it comes to domestic issues. But what a lot of people don't realize is that in foreign policy, there is a consensus between the Democrats and Republicans. Uh, not to say that there aren't differences, there are momentary differences, uh, but they're both equally hawkish on foreign policy. Uh, you know, we see that now. It looked like the uh, Democrats were harder on Russia than Trump and softer on China than, than, than Trump. 
But now, you know, the pivot to Asia strategy, which really goes back to the Obama administration, uh, and Biden was the vice president, of course, at the time, um, they're re-implementing that policy of a hardline approach to China. So there really aren't uh, really basic differences. And, you know, if you listen to the discourse of the Biden administration, uh, you see that there is more emphasis. This is at the level of rhetoric, but sometimes rhetoric says a lot. Uh, it used to be that U.S. policymakers, both Republicans and Democrats, but mainly Democrats, would emphasize democracy promotion throughout the world. And, of course, you continue to hear that, naturally, but that gets conflated with our strategic interests. And the strategic interests are mentioned or emphasized more and more so that uh, when the policymakers attempt to justify uh, interventionism, they, rather than harp on, you know, reporting democracy, which is a harder case, a harder sell, uh, increasingly so, they emphasize national security, U.S. national security, strategic interests, and sometimes just plain interests. Now, I want to turn to the issue of the sanctions. Um, they continue to be in place. There have been no modification, practically, of the sanctions. Now, there have been. They say that they've had made some minor, minor modifications. It seems, but uh, in effect, uh, I think there's a question as to whether that has any real life effect, really. Um, and so, I just want to ask you, what uh, what would you say have been the most important effects that the sanctions have had so far, which uh, you know have been intensified under Trump and are being continued now? Yeah, the uh, sanctions have had a devastating effect on the Venezuelan economy and on Venezuelans. You know, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, both the Democrats and Republicans, is that the sanctions are really targeting uh, Maduro and his closest allies, his political allies. Um, but, you know, I don't think anybody believes that. Anybody that knows anything about Venezuela knows that Venezuela is completely dependent on oil. It's been dependent on oil since the mid-late 1920s, when Venezuela became the leading, the world's leading exporter of oil, status which it maintained until 1970. Um, oil exporting countries in the third world tend to be more dependent on oil than other countries are dependent on their main export commodity. In the case of Venezuela, I mean, that's always been the case. And so when you have oil income um, being reduced to practically, you know, like 1%, of what it was before because of the sanctions, which are targeting Venezuelan oil, uh, that's got to affect the whole economy and it's got to affect all Venezuelans in a big way. You know, the opposition says in Venezuela that the uh, blame should not be placed on Washington because the economic problems that Venezuela is facing uh, is not due to the sanctions, it's due to uh, Maduro's mistaken policies. But the fact of the matter is, because they say that those mistaken policies uh, go back before the Trump administration, um, the first big sanctions were imposed in August of 2017. So the narrative of the opposition and the narrative coming out of Washington, they, they accept that lock, stock, and barrel, that it's really uh, Maduro's fault because the economic problems really began in 2013. They really began when um, uh, Chavez went off to Cuba for the last time, 
Maduro became the acting president. Uh, and it's true that there were problems with the exchange controls. There were problems with in inflation. But still, Venezuela was a privileged third world country up until those sanctions were imposed. Um, I can tell you, uh, you know, I'm a university professor in Venezuela. And we were university professors in Venezuela were privileged by Latin American standards. And it was that way in 2015, 2016. Um, the deterioration took place in 2017. I would say that 95% of the deterioration in the living standards of Venezuelans um, have occurred over these last four years. So it's because of the sanctions. And the sanctions actually go back to before uh, Trump, because Obama imposed sanctions in early 2015. Uh, and that's when U.S. corporations such as Ford, Kimberly-Clark, uh, and then after that, General Motors, Kellogg, a whole slew of companies left Venezuelans uh, because those sanctions signaled something to the business community. Um, probably most of your audience uh, know about the, uh, you know, the specifics in terms of the suffering of Venezuelan people. Uh, the study that was done by Jeffrey Sachs and Mark Weisbrot that stated that uh, uh, 60,000 Venezuelans had died uh, directly due to the sanctions, and that was um, uh, modified by a study that was done by Alfred Desaias, uh, formerly of the United Nations. Uh, he updated that, uh, and his figure was 100,000 people have, been, uh, have died as a result of those sanctions. Um, what a lot of people don't know is because the narrative coming out of the State Department, coming out of the, you know, Washington, is that, no, the sanctions aren't hurting the Venezuelan people because there are exceptions with regard to medicine and with regard to food. So that's what the uh, policymakers are saying. But the fact of the matter is that the sanctions are formulated in such a way and are carried out in such a way that exporters, uh, that is, commercial, you know, outfits throughout the world um, are reluctant to have anything to do with Venezuela because they fear the sanctions. And the Trump administration went after uh, those commercial establishments, establishments in such a way that their actions intimidated uh, all, you know, commercial corporations. And so, as a result, the few corporations that are willing to risk it, they're willing to sell, say, food or medicine to Venezuela, uh, they sell those items, they take advantage of the fact that there's no competition, and also in accordance with the law of supply and demand, uh, you know, less supply, the prices go up. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, uh, and not only that, with regard to the oil, the same thing is happening. Um, the few companies that were willing to deal with Venezuelan oil um, uh, were also intimidated. Rosneft, uh, which was the, the you know the, is the Russian company, part state, part private, they were serving as intermediaries. They were buying the oil, but they weren't paying for it in money because they were afraid of being sanctioned, and so there was a barter kind of arrangement. And they would ship the oil off to um, uh, to other companies in, in India, for instance, uh, Reliance, 
uh, in India, which was buying a lot of Venezuelan oil. But this indirect network meant that Venezuela was getting very little as a result. Um, and Rosneft was intimidated, and they pulled out of Venezuela, because even though Rosneft is partly state-owned, it's also um, owned by uh, different uh, private companies uh, internationally. And so they pulled out, and the Chinese pulled out as well. And so the Venezuelans engaged in uh, the spot market. That means these one-shot transactions, rather than uh, a, a contract uh, over a period of time. So they would, you know, pay a transportation company to send the oil to Curacao to be refined. And in, instead of paying $1 or less than $1 for that transportation, they were paying uh, between 2 and 3 Venezuela was paying those companies between 2 and $3. And with, refi with regard to the refining, something similar to that. Um, the prices were jacked up more than, you know, 100%. And so this is the situation for Venezuela. This is the reason why Venezuela re Venezuelan revenue from the oil, uh, you know, declined precipitously. And like I say, it affected the Venezuelan economy and the Venezuelan people in a big way. Um, the uh, Trump administration and now the Biden administration are going after those intermediaries. Uh, and that's part of the intimidation process. So that the case of Alex Saab, who is a Colombian Venezuelan, who was you know, engaged in commercial activity. Um, he was uh, on his way to Europe. Uh, his plane landed in Cape Verde, uh, which is a country off the shore of Africa. Uh, and the United States demanded his extradition. And just, you know, like yesterday, uh, his case went to their Supreme Court, and they decided against Saab. And so Saab would be sent off to the United States and the accusation against Saab is, firstly, money laundering, and secondly, corruption. Now, I really don't know the specifics, uh, I confess. But I think common sense will tell you that those are probably trumped-up charges. With regard to the corruption, naturally, any, uh, um, you know, anybody who is involved in this kind of activity is going to be afraid of exactly what's happening now to Saab. And so they're going to be demanding more. The Venezuelan government is going to have to pay more for any kind of trading activity uh, because it's it's dangerous. And with regard to money laundering, of course, these uh, uh, traders have to find devious ways in order to place the money uh, through these transactions because their money could be easily frozen as a result of, of, of the sanctions. So this is what's going on. And like I say, it's um, affecting the economy in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Now, um, of course, there's also the question of, you know, what's the point of these sanctions? I mean, uh, on the face of it, you know, they say that it's uh, to prevent, uh, you know, the Maduro government from becoming, uh, in, being involved in corruption, from stealing money from its population, etc. Um, and then there's also the more kind of, uh, how should I say, uh, other uh, arguments that have been made, uh, but not quite as overtly, but certainly suggested, or not officially perhaps, but unofficially, that the aim is uh, regime change. But um, when you look at, for example, political science studies of uh, the effects of sanctions, they across the board show 
that they have never have the intended effect. Um, so what do you think is the actual purpose of these sanctions? Well, I would say that there are two purposes. One is to teach Venezuela a lesson. Uh, it serves as, a, as an example. And the second point is that they serve as leverage for U.S. Uh, negotiators uh, to, you know, uh, jack up the, 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 the demands on, on Venezuela and force, you know, concessions from Maduro. With regard to the first, uh, the United States has attempted to punish Chavez for almost from the very beginning, at least from the beginning of the uh, Bush uh, administration, when, when uh, Chavez criticized the bombing of Afghanistan, this was in late 2001. After that, the Bush administration and after Bush, Obama uh, did everything possible in order to isolate uh, Venezuela, in order to you know create difficulties on all fronts. You know, uh, Maduro uses the term economic war. I use the word, word war on economic war in Venezuela. I say war in Venezuela because it transcended uh, economic measures. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the cable gates, uh, the cable gate documents that WikiLeaks uh, divulged um, demonstrate uh, that the uh, U.S. government uh, was funneling money through uh, the NED, through U.S. aid, uh, through a whole host of organizations. Uh, firstly, the organizations that are affiliated with NED, one of which is the Republican, Republican Institute, and it's equi equivalent in the Democratic Party. And they allocated money to all kinds of activity in Venezuela with regard to uh, election monitoring, uh, security, military affairs, um, crisis resolution, all kinds of, uh, of, of activity. Uh, and all the people, practically all the people, who were receiving that money were opposition people. And so there was a campaign against Chavez. And of course, you could say, well, the United States always acts to undermine you know, anybody who is critical of the United States. But the fact of the matter is, that Washington has always targeted Chavez, has always targeted, you know, the Chavistas, has always targeted Venezuela, much more so than any other country. You know, in the, in the 21st century, we have the phenomenon of the pink tide, these progressive governments that came to power in Brazil, in the case of Lula, uh, Argentina, in the case of Kirchner, uh, Eva Morales, in the case of Bolivia, Correa, in the case of Ecuador, and other countries. Um, but the fact of the matter is that Venezuela was singled out. Um, the Office of Transition um, was established in Caracas, in the U.S. Embassy, and remained there for a number of years. Now, the, this, these offices of transition are usually instruments of U.S. foreign policy in very unstable countries, you know, like in Syria and Libya and, and those countries in which, you know, there is regime change possibilities. But in the case of, of Venezuela, that was unlikely. Um, and Venezuela was certainly not an unstable country back in the, in the days of Chavez. Um, so th th this is, you know, this, this campaign against Venezuela goes way back. And I believe that the sanctions were really designed to teach Venezuela a lesson and to show the rest of the world, <clears throat> because 
you know, Chavez was a symbol for the region and for the world, much more so than other uh, heads of states, much more so than Evo Morales and Correa. They were also critical of the United States, and they clashed, especially in the case of Morales. With the United States, Morales broke diplomatic relations. But he didn't have the charisma at the international level. And Chavez, from the very outset, uh, used the term multipolar world, which is really a euphemism for anti-imperialism. Uh, and so the United States targeted uh, Chavez. And so what's happening under Maduro has to be seen in this broader context. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, there is plenty of evidence that the United States um, has that in mind. They, like you say, uh, at, at one point it looked like they were going to destabilize the Maduro government in 2019 when Guaido proclaimed himself president. And then one month after that, when they attempted to bring in humanitarian aid from Colombia, there were a couple months there in which it looked like they might have been successful. Uh, then there was a coup attempt in, um, uh, on April 30th of 2019, which was a complete fiasco. But uh, uh, it became evident, and Trump himself uh, started indicating that this wasn't going to work and that Guaido had, had been somewhat of a failure. So your question is a good one, and I think that that's part of the, the answer. The other part is, uh, has to do with leverage. That's a term that's being used in Washington uh, increasingly. That the sanctions, okay, the sanctions are going to bring about regime change, which means that the sanctions are not going to really uh, uh, achieve their objectives in terms of regime, regime change, and maybe not even in terms of you know, democratic change. Uh, but the United States can use that as leverage in order to further its interests. Um, and you know, Elliot Abrams demonstrated exactly what this policy consists of, because in October of last year, right before the US elections, uh, he implemented sanctions on diesel and gas oil, which had been exempted from the sanctions. And, uh, you know, in the midst of the COVID epidemic and everything else, the sanctions should have been, you know, at least softened, if not lifted completely. Uh, but the Trump administration did just the opposite. Uh, and that was especially uh, horrendous because diesel is used for transportation and the pl electric, electricity plants of hospitals uh, use diesel uh, as fuel. And so, uh, you know, depriving Venezuela of diesel was going to have a horrendous effect and did. Uh, to this day, Venezuela has a shortage of diesel now as a result of that. Well, after Biden was elected president, um, Abrams told the, the, the Biden administration uh, they should lift the, those sanctions on diesel and gas oil, but should get something out of it. So obviously this is a, a maneuver on the part of Washington uh, to, uh, you know, uh, force uh, on Venezuela a certain, you know, um, demands that Venezuela is making, that, I'm sorry, that the Washington, that the uh, uh, Biden administration is making on Venezuela. Uh, and those demands don't necessarily have to do with democracy in Venezuela. I just want to turn now to the political situation in terms of, you know, 
and now there's a perhaps there's a parallel here uh, that is with uh, U.S. support for Juan Guaido, uh, the so-called in interim president that the U.S. continues to recognize. Um, now, why would uh, the Biden administration continue to support him, especially considering that Guaido seems to have practically no support within Venezuela? As a matter of fact, uh, Enrique Capriles, who ran for president twice uh, under the opposition banner, has now called on the U.S. to stop recognizing him. So w why is the U.S. going it alone here as well? Well, again, I, I think this has to do with leverage. Uh, I don't think that, and this is my opinion, I might be wrong, but I don't think that the uh, Biden administration is thinking of maintaining recognition of Guaido. I think it's a uh, negotiation, uh, bargaining chip. Uh, and uh, it is so evident that Guaido has been a failure. Uh, he has lost support among the opposition, uh, not only among the opposition in Venezuela, because uh, the opposition in Venezuela is very much divided over electoral participation. Uh, and there's an important block of the opposition that did participate in the elections in December for the National Assembly. And there are important historic leaders of the opposition, ex-presidential candidates, uh, such as Claudia Fermin uh, and Eduardo Fernandez, two very prestigious uh, long-standing politicians in, in, in Venezuela, ex-presidential candidates, going back to uh, the elections of uh, 1988 and 1993 um, that support electoral participation and other important, fairly prestigious uh, politicians. So that the opposition is divided, but not only those members of the bloc that support electoral participation are opposed to the sanctions and criticize Guaido uh, very openly now, uh, but members of the radical opposition, what I call the radical opposition, those members of the opposition that support you know, the sanctions and even support military invasion, which Guaido has uh, indicated that he's open to. Um, uh, Antonio Ledesma, for instance, who is a you know, radical opposition person who is close to Guaido, is now maintaining a certain distance because of the issue of corruption. Uh, which is, you know, really significant because one of the aspects of the narrative against um, against uh, Maduro is that there is corruption in Venezuela, and uh, yet Guaido, the accusations against Guaido are so blatant that uh, another political leader of the opposition, an ex-presidential candidate, Humberto Calderón Humberti, who was the uh, uh, ambassador for Guaido in Colombia, there was money coming into Colombia for humanitarian aid to alleviate the situation for uh, Venezuelan immigrants in Colombia, and that money was getting misused. And Calderón Berti brought that to the attention of Guaido, Guaido didn't do anything, and Calderón Berti resigned as a result. And something very similar to that happened in Great Britain with Vanessa Newman. Uh, who comes from a very wealthy family in, in Venezuela. Um, uh, I, I know her personally. She's, she was a, um, uh, she taught at Columbia University. I was an adjunct professor there, and we shared podiums on a number of occasions. Uh, her, she was talking in opposition to uh, Maduro, and I was defending some, uh, some of his policies. Uh, but she was uh, the ambassador 
uh, of Guaido in Great Britain, and she resigned, also as a result of accusations of corruption, which she was uh, denouncing. So that the situation um, is, uh, uh, you know, such that Guaido really has lost credibility among Venezuelans, has lost credibility among Venezuelan politicians in the opposition. Uh, he's lost all mobilization capacity, you know, after that failed coup attempt in April of 2019. Every time, well, actually, the following day, he was, there was a May Day um, uh, manif uh, mobilization, and then the following year as well, he was unable to mobilize more than a handful of people. And it's been that way every time he calls his people uh, onto the streets. So that that has been a complete uh, fiasco. And I can't believe that the Biden administration is really serious about maintaining you know, uh, recognition of Guaido as president. I think that they're using that in order to pressure Maduro uh, into bargaining um, uh, uh, and uh, imposing certain policies on Venezuela according to U.S. strategic interests. Now, of course, in order to bargain, it takes two sides, uh, both sides to agree. Now, there's questions, I think, uh, whether the U.S. Uh, is serious about <laughs> even negotiating, because so far they haven't really said that they've uh, engaged in negotiations, but um, maybe they're just waiting for uh, the right moment or something, I don't know. But uh, there's also the question of, well, what is Maduro doing with regard to uh, to the United States? I mean, is uh, do you think that uh, Maduro is interested in negotiating with the U.S. and the uh, hard uh, hardline opposition? What's going on within Venezuela in that regard? Yeah, there's no question that Maduro is interested in negotiating uh, with the United States. I mean, he said that time and time again, even under Trump uh, in the uh, moments in which Trump was uh, using the most aggressive of language against Maduro and against the uh, Venezuelan government, he stated repeatedly that he um, wanted to negotiate with the United States. Um, uh, but I think that uh, Maduro uh, has implemented certain policies which are designed to make Venezuela attractive uh, to the United States in order to show that, look, uh, something might happen to Venezuela similar to Cuba, uh, in which for so many years you had uh, investments, at least in the tourist industry and a few other sectors by Europeans, but Cuba was off limits to the United States. And nobody less than um, uh, David Rockefeller was one of the foremost advocates of reestablishing, you know, commercial relations with Cuba because U.S. capitalists were, were, were losing out. And I think there's something similar. You know, the New York Times published an article about six months ago, very interesting article. Their reporting on Venezuela has been uh, terrible, uh, very one-sided. One it couldn't be any more one-sided. Sometimes you read their articles and you think that they were written by members of the Venezuelan opposition. But there was one article a while back uh, which talked about the back-channel negotiations uh, between Venezuela and the United States. And it indicated that in the Trump administration or uh, people in Trump's circles, uh, um, uh, business people were interested uh, 
investing in Venezuela. And that Maduro chose as a intermediate mediary, uh, Raul Gorin, who uh, is the owner of Globovision, one of the main uh, cable TV uh, networks. And he uh, negotiated with the uh, Trump administration, and there was a certain amount of interest. But the hardliners, uh, beginning with Mar Marco Rubio and, and others, had the upper hand. And so those negotiations didn't prosper. And the uh, uh, Trump administration placed Gorin on their blacklist of people who were, who were being sanctioned. Um, but the uh, po possibility that something similar to that might happen now, that there may be negotiations, and those negotiations could involve uh, you know, economic opportunities for U.S. investors, I think that that is, is a, a very definite possibility. And it's something that is very polemical in Venezuela, polemical within the Venezuelan left, uh, because there are sectors of the Venezuelan left that are very critical of any possibility of any kind of opening up to foreign capital. I, you know, I, I really don't agree with that. I think that it is a legitimate, given the, the, the difficulty, given the devastating circumstances in Venezuela, anything that Maduro can do practically in order to alleviate the economic situation in Venezuela is justifiable. But uh, Maduro uh, passed a legislation uh, uh, a few months ago called the Anti-Blockade Law, which uh, is very controversial. It opens possibilities uh, for foreign investors. Uh, it uh, opens the possibility of secret negotiations with those foreign investors. And sectors of the left have been very critical of Maduro, uh, specifically with regard to that law. As a matter of fact, the, the Communist Party, which was a uh, somewhat of a critical ally, but nevertheless an important ally, uh, they have a certain following in, in Venezuela, and they certainly uh, prestigious because they're the oldest party in Venezuela. They go back to the 1930s. Um, uh, they they uh, form part of the official coalition or alliance, uh, but they pulled out partly because of this law and because of uh, Maduro's policies of opening up to foreign investors. Um, they claim that these, what they call neoliberal policies, uh, are you know not the way to go. Uh, and not only the Communist Party and, and other groups, but uh, people who are fairly close to Maduro, such as the intellectual Luis Brito Garcia, who's an outstanding Venezuelan intellectual, very pro-Chavista, uh, he has also uh, denounced the anti-blockade law. I personally believe, you know, I, I, I've been critical of Maduro. It's not like I support everything he says and does. And you can read my articles if you if you want to, you know, see details along those lines. But it seems to me that, you know, the Soviet Union after 1917, after the Civil War in 1918, Lenin opened up to private capital. Uh, he opened up to, to big foreign capital. Occidental came in, uh, Occidental Oil Company, uh, Arm & Hammer, uh, started, you know, uh, investing uh, in drilling for oil, in, in the Soviet Union after 1917, uh, and you had the new economic policy, which was an opening up to the middle class and the countryside. So, I mean, 
there's a precedent for this kind of thing, and it doesn't mean that it's going to go on forever, but it seems to me at this particular moment, uh, that policy of opening up to foreign investment for economic reasons and also political reasons, I think that's the strategy behind the anti-blockade law. Um, possibly, you know, uh, convincing the Biden administration to lift the sanctions or at least uh, uh, soften the sanctions and to negotiate with, with Venezuela. I think that that is a, uh, an acceptable strategy given the circumstances. What I do believe, though, and I've stated this in, in, in an article that, I, that, I, uh, that was posted recently, that the uh, Maduro government should make clear from the very outset that, you know, we're open to negotiations, and we want a negotiation, we want to negotiate, but there's one thing that we will not negotiate, and that's regime change, or anything along those lines. That means, you know, uh, setting a new date for elections, for presidential elections. That's what the opposition is hoping for. That's what Capriles, and that's the strategy behind the European Union, to try to force Venezuela into holding, you know, rescheduling elections. Um, it seems to me that the uh, Maduro government should make clear that that's not on the table. Considering that that's the big, the main demand, though, on the part of the United States, I guess uh, it's going to mean perhaps more impasse and no more progress. But we'll see. I mean, but I want to get to another point, um, which uh, which you raised, which is the kind of the criticisms within Venezuela of the uh, Maduro government. Now, the Communist Party and other parties had complained, particularly uh, not just about the policies, but also that they were basically shut out of the uh, legislative elections effectively. Uh, what do you make of the, uh, those arguments and how serious is the situation and how uh, widespread is political debate within Venezuela? Well, I, I think that the criticism of the Maduro government and the and not so much Maduro himself necessarily, uh, but the PSUV, the governing party, of uh, uh, being somewhat closed in terms of um, negotiating with allies and trying to develop policies that uh, create a consensus among the different allies uh, in, in what was the Polo Patriotico coalition. Uh, I think it's a valid criticism. Um, the uh, Maduro government uh, uh, is sort, sort of polarizing on the left in that sense. Uh, the rhetoric is, you know, you're either with us or against us. Um, and it's understandable in a situation like that uh, in which uh, the aggression against Venezuela is so great, the opposition up until recently, practically a united opposition uh, supported by the United States, as we have discussed, and supported by Europe, and, and Venezuela is so isolated in Latin America. You know, you can understand um, the attitude of the Chavistas in power uh, that anybody that criticizes them um, is really uh, playing the game of the opposition. That's basically been their uh, attitude uh, all along, and it you know even goes back to Chavez. Chavez was, was very tolerant in a lot of ways, but in other ways, uh, he was sometimes rather sectarian also. 
Uh, and so I think that criticism of the Communist Party is, is valid. Um, and I think that uh, debate is necessary. But I think also it's necessary to establish a difference between those people uh, who call themselves leftists, who say that they support socialism, or support change, radical change, etc., um, but in effect, they put the Maduro government in the same sack uh, as the opposition, uh, what I call a plague on both your houses approach. Uh, and you see that a lot. I mean, anybody that reads anything about Venezuela, you see that in um, the U.S. Uh, alternative media also. Uh, a lot of people who, you know, are opposed to the sanctions or opposed to uh, the U.S. government, uh, but they say that uh, Maduro is um, uh, a sellout. Uh, and they talk about corruption, and there is corruption in, in Venezuela, but there's corruption throughout Latin America as well. So, I mean, that's, that's another issue that, that I won't get into, uh, but it's being used uh, by these uh, people on the left who consider Maduro to be just as bad as Guaido. And so a distinction has to be made uh, between, you know, what political scientists call loyal opposition, or in this case, uh, loyal allies uh, on the left uh, who are critical, and those who... Um, uh, consider Maduro uh, uh, a sellout and basically support regime change just, as, just like Washington does and just like Guaido does. Uh, so I think that there's a distinction there that has to be made. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot. Um, I think we're going to leave it there for now. Um, and, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure we're going to come back to you again very soon sure. uh, as things develop. Hopefully they continue to develop, although there's been a lot of um, stagnation, it seems, in terms of U.S. policy, at least. Um, but uh, and, and hopefully people will recognize just how brutal this sanctions regime is. Certainly. But, uh, so we're going to leave it there. I'm speaking to Steve Elner, retired history professor from Venezuela's Universidad de Oriente. Thanks again, Steve, for having joined us today. Thanks for having me on. And thank you to our viewers and listeners for joining us as well. Please don't forget to visit our website at theanalysis.news uh, and please make a donation. Mm -hmm.